thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we continue our study of the book of Revelation and we are heading towards the end of the seven seals. We're going to be studying chapter 8 verse 1 through verse 5 which is the last of the seals. And hopefully when we come back we will begin that section that deals with the trumpets. Chapter 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in the heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there was peals of thunder, loud noises, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What we are looking at now is the closure of those seals and the introduction of the the trumpets, which is going to be the following section. When the seventh seal is open, it seems as if nothing happens because there is silence for about half an hour. What an incongruous thing to say. Silence for about half an hour. In the midst of all these heavy images... You have this half an hour. It'd be like somebody f- fighting dinosaurs, and in the middle of the fight, one dinosaur stops and says, Can we order pizza now? It, 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 it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. We're talking about seals, and, and last week we've seen the 144,000 that were numbered, and the great multitude, and poems, and the angels, and all, and then suddenly silence for half an hour. About, about half an hour. Not exactly half an hour, about half an hour. The about is effectively in the Greek language. Let's spend some time over this business of the silence for about half an hour. So there are two things here. First, silence, and then half an hour. 
Here are five interpretations for the silence. One interpretation holds that this is the only seal without content. So the seal is open and there's no content, so we just wait. Put yourself on pause for half an hour, we'll resume later. And therefore its actual content are the trumpets and the bowls. If you're wondering which bowls we're talking about, remember, recall that in the book of Revelation we have the trumpets, and after that we have have the seven bowls of wrath. A second contends that this is God's actual rest. God opened the first six seals and now he's resting on the seventh. Well, there is something very interesting in this image because it recalls Genesis. And if you remember, we've been seeing Genesis imagery all across Revelation, constantly. So there is something to be said about this notion that that silence has something to do with the rest of God. So the first one, again, the first meaning of that silence So for those of you joining us right now, we are in chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 5, which is the seventh seal. And we are considering the first verse where it says that when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in the heaven for about half an hour. Opens the seventh seal and there's silence for about half an hour. We said this is kind of really incongruous. You have all this powerful imagery and then suddenly this very precise thing and very mundane thing about Silence for half an hour. It doesn't seem to be fitting the language. And the image I used earlier, I said it would be like, you know, a bunch of dinosaurs fighting, and then suddenly one dinosaur says, hey, guys, can we order pizza now? It's, it's that incongruous, but we don't laugh because usually we don't know what to do with the text. We don't, we can't kind of create the right distance between the different levels. To us, it's one flat surface. But we have to learn to do that. It is very incongruous. Why is he doing that? Why does St. John does that? Every time he does that, it is to attract our attention to something, but he doesn't say what. He doesn't say it. Right, I'll give you a perfect example where he does that in, his, in the Gospel. If you were to turn quickly to John chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 35 and following. Uh, the next day, John, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he, as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard that, him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Now, before I read the rest, here is John saying something rather very mystical. Behold the Lamb of God. The two guys see Jesus and they follow him. Jesus noticed them, they're following him, turns around and says, What do you seek? You, you, you notice the language? It's, 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 it is fundamentally profound. Right? So you'd expect a profound answer. Instead, what do you get? Rabbi, where do you, where do you live? You get the dinosaurs ordering a pizza? Behold the Lamb of God. They follow him. What do you seek? Rabbi, where do you live? John does that constantly. This is one example. I can give you a whole bunch of them. When he does that, it's like he just uh, put a little flash video. Right? One of those pesky things on your computer. You want to be able to take a swat and swat that thing to get it to stop from dancing. 
Right? That's what he just did. He says, hello, attention, attention, something really deep is going on here. And you go, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, what, 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 John, what? He doesn't say. Why? He expects you to find out what it is. Right? So the same thing just happened here. For silence for about half an hour. Whoa. So I was going through the different interpretation of that, the meaning of that silence. The first one is that this seal, the seventh, is without meaning. And its content really are the trumpets and the bowls. The second is that the silence represents the rest of God. And I was saying that there, there is Genesis imagery throughout the book of Revelation, as we saw so far, and it continues. And there, there is something very attractive to this interpretation that just as God worked for six days and rested on the seventh, the Lamb of God opens the first six seals, and on the seventh, He rests. Something interesting. The third is that this is essentially a temporary suspension of God's revelation. Again, the notion that, you know, things are being put on pause for a while. The fourth is that humanity is awestruck at the end of history in response to God's full revelation of His sovereign mysterious purposes throughout history. So we're really taken by the fullness of revelation. And so we just are dumbfounded for, for about half an hour. See, that's what the problem with all these interpretations, when you just stick next to it for about half an hour. So what do we do? For about half an hour, we're standing with our jaws on the floor, and then half an hour later, we remember this, and we, oh, okay, now we can continue. What is the problem with all this ex- explanation? The problem, the intrinsic and the fundamental problem, isn't, is, it isn't that they're wrong. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I think there's a lot that we can take from them, and we will. But they seem to be out of context. If I told you that the seventh seal is about God's rest in heaven. How does that connect with the sixth seal that came previously? And how does it relate to the trumpets? I I told you before, faith builds on reason. In a sense, you may even say that faith is supernatural reason. Right? So you can't ever shut down reason and say, well, you know, it's just an act of faith. Reason must be satisfied for us to believe. And if reason is not satisfied... We don't know what we believe, and we will not believe it firmly. Right? We are saved through reason. Remember that. So always, when you hear me say this stuff, you ask yourself, am I convinced? Does this make sense? Does it fit? More importantly, does it convict me of a truth that makes me raise my heart to God? You see? We're not here to exhaust the meaning of Scripture. I don't ever claim I'm exhausting the meaning of Scripture. That would be a silly thing to say. Or as Dr. Spock would say, it's illogical. You can't do that, right? But can I present a cohesive interpretation that you can latch onto and you can learn from and you can grow in your faith? That's the challenge. That's what we want to do. So how are we to determine which is correct, if any? And more importantly, how do we link that to what happened before and what happened after? As with everything else we've done so far, we use the same approach. We go back to Scripture. And we ask ourselves a simple question. Where in Scripture do we see silence? So we do a little bit of investigation. We start doing some research. Let me find where the word silence occurs in Scripture. What can I infer from that? Okay. 
In the New American Bible, silence occurs about 40 times in all of Scripture, which is a small number. And many of these, uh, um, many of these occurrences have something to do with the fact that someone was simply not allowed to speak. He was silenced. So it's, it's not relevant. But there are a number of passages which are extremely relevant to this, to this text and will help us understand what this silence is all about. This is what we're going to do. We're going to look at it biblically. Then we're going to look at it um, liturgically. And when we put the two together, I think uh, I should be able to present to you uh, an explanation that would be satisfying. First scriptural, then liturgical. So first, let's turn to Psalm 76. And you will see us quoting the Psalms on a regular basis these days. Psalm 76. Um, so incidentally, if you don't have a Bible yet, get one please. Get the one I'm using. It's the uh, Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition. It's uh, published by Ignatius Press and by Scepter. Both of them publish it. And no, I don't own stocks in either of those uh, publishing companies. Get one. More importantly, bring it with you and use it. And I would also recommend, again, that you, you do yourself a favor if you were to take notes throughout the talk or else get the CDs and listen to them and take notes. The, the stuff is too heavy for it to get in our brains on one pass. It's not going to work. Okay? There's so much going on here. All right? 76. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious art thou, more majestic than the everlasting mountains. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both riders and horse lay stunned. But thou, terrible art thou, who can stand, who can stand before thee when once thy anger is roused? From the heavens thou didst utter judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the oppressed of the earth. A couple of really interesting things in this text. Judgment is from heaven and when God arose for judgment, the earth was stilled, silent. So the first meaning we infer, is that silence on the part of humans is a sign of impeding judgment. Judgment is coming down. Let's see if we can confirm that. So this is a verse, we get that hunch by reading this text. Now, I'm not going to spend time analyzing all of it. It has to do with David. It has to, there's a lot going on here. I'm not going to be doing this. Otherwise, we won't get out of the text. But that's the first idea we get out of it. When we read, from the heavens... 
And we know this scene that we're, the, the, the seals are being opened up in the heavenly court from the heavens. Thou didst utter judgment. The earth feared and was still. And stillness imply silence. Turn to Psalm 98. I'm going to mention the psalm and read a little bit of it. Because actually it isn't a psalm that apply here. But I couldn't pass on this particular psalm. Because uh, it has a lot to do with prayer. So Psalm 98, Psalm 88 is a beautiful psalm to pray. When you feel downtrodden. When you feel depressed. When you feel that God has abandoned you. When you feel that you're all alone. When you feel that you have too much on your shoulders. And there is nothing that you can do. Even if you don't feel praying, open up to Psalm, uh, Psalm 88. Just read it through. Right? Uh, there is a beautiful commentary about St. John of the Cross on the psalm. This is a psalm that, where the moral sense applies most. That is the sense that applies to me today. Hmm? Did I say 98? I just wanted to see if you were awake. It is? Okay. 88. Double eight, eighty-eight. O Lord my God, I call for help by day. I cry out in the night before Thee. Let my prayer come before Thee. Incline Thy ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom Thou dost remember no more. For they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast put me in the depth of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Thy wrath lies heavy upon me, and thou dost overwhelm me with all thy waves. Thou hast caused my companions to shun me. Thou hast made me a thing of horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon thee, O Lord. I spread out my hands to thee. Dost thou work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise thee? Is thy steadfast love declared in the grave, or thy faithfulness in, Ab- in Abaddon? Are thy wonders known in the darkness, or thy saving help in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to thee, in the morning my prayer comes before thee. O Lord, why dost thou cast me off? Why dost thou hide thy face from me? Afflicted and close to death, From my youth up, I suffer thy terrors. I am helpless. Thy wrath has swept over me. Thy dread assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in upon me together. Thou hast caused lover and friend to to shun me. My companions are in darkness. What this shows us is how we can apply the text of Revelation to the moral sense. So whenever you see earth, Whenever you see land, whenever you see sea, you can look at all these elements are as different aspects of your own soul. All right? And there is a very beautiful and rich and rewarding reading of the book of Revelation morally once we understand the literal sense. If you're wondering what's going on here, this is what happens when God draws you in the night of senses, which is the first of the nights of, of the spiritual purgation. And he starts cleansing you from within and you feel darkness and only darkness. You feel abandoned by God and he's not there and there's nothing left and you're in the pit. 
And that's why oftentimes when someone tells me what I'm, my prayer life is sort of going backward, I don't make, I'm not making any progress. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's really good. You're making progress. Because progress is not about horizontal motion. It's about vertical motion, downward, dig. All right? So that's a very powerful psalm. Whenever you are in a situation like this, go back and read the psalm. And you will see it speaks for you. It prays for you. It says what you feel beautifully. And it tells something about the holiness of David and the level he, re- he really reached. Be it as it may. Let's continue. Let's resume now to Wisdom chapter 18. I meant Wisdom chapter 8. Did I say I know how to count? I'm a math major. I don't know how to count. Don't ask me. All right. Wisdom chapter 8. Here we go. Here is Solomon talking about wisdom. And he says, I'm going to read verse 1 through 12. She reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. I loved her and sought her from my youth, and I desired to take her for my bride, and I became enamored of her beauty. She glorifies her noble birth by living with God, and the Lord of all loves her. For she is an initiate in the knowledge of God and an associate in His works. If riches are a desirable possession in life, what is richer than wisdom who affects all things? And if understanding is effective... Who more than she is fashioner of what exists? And if anyone loves righteousness, her labors are virtues. For she teaches self-control and prudence, justice and courage. Nothing in life is more profitable for men than these. And if anyone longs for wide experience, she knows the things of old and infers the things to come. She understands turns of speech and the solutions of riddles. She has foreknowledge of signs and wonders and all of the outcome of seasons and times. Therefore, I determined to take her to live with me, knowing that she would give me good counsel and encouragement in cares of grief. Because of her, I shall have glory among the multitudes and honor in the presence of the elders, though I am young. I shall be found keen in judgment, and in the sight of rulers I shall be admired. When I am silent, they will wait for me, and when I speak, they will give heed. And when I speak at greater length, they will put their hands on their mouths. They will put their hands on their mouths. So here's a second clue. Here is God who is about to utter a judgment. He hasn't done that yet and everyone is silent. What, it, what this t- passage tells us as we reflect on Revelation is that the judgment that is about to come is wise. It is wisdom that is speaking. It is wisdom that is judging. Saint Louis de Montfort has this beautiful reflection on our Lord where he calls our Lord wisdom. He applies wisdom to Jesus Christ. So analogically, you can say wisdom is Jesus Christ. Anagogically, as it applies to the church, you can say that wisdom is Our Lady. It is a beautiful interpretation of of these texts that apply to Our Lady. But the point is that not only when God is about to utter a judgment. We are silent. We're not just silent because we're afraid. We're also silent and awestruck by the wisdom of God. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 41. In Isaiah chapter 41, God is about to judge the nations and they are commanded to listen in silence. 
Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Take courage. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the, the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldiering, It is good, and they fasten it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Here we see two different reactions. The reactions of the nations and reactions of the just. Both are silenced. Everyone is silenced for different reasons. There are those who are silenced because they're afraid. There are those who are silenced because they're awestruck. To those, God is going to pronounce a judgment. And to those, to these, God is going to give comfort and help. Right? So in that silence, what we have is also God, God's curses and God's blessing contained, ready to flow. Now let's, let's turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. In chapter 2, there is a vision given to the prophet. And Beginning with, with verse 6, we read, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him in scoffing derision of him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be booty for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of men and violence to, to the earth, to cities and all who dwell therein. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. And the, the prophecy, the vision continues with woes, which are curses pronounced against Israel. And it ends, the whole series of woe ends on verse 20 where it says, But the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. So there again, the notion of judgment that is going to be pronounced by God from His holy temple. That is important for us because we saw so far that what we are, what we're witnessing in heaven is not the beatific vision, but effectively God in His temple during the heavenly liturgy. And we see it here again where God from the liturgy and through the liturgy is going to be judging the nations. 
We can see that a little bit clearer later. The same thing occurs also in the prophet Zephaniah. Let's turn quickly to Zephaniah chapter 1. An interesting thing about that particular text is that it links the judgment of God with the trumpets, which is what is about to happen a little bit later. So in chapter 1, we read this, starting with verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. So remember the text we read a little bit earlier in chapter 6, in the sixth, in the sixth seal, where what the four horsemen are going to do, the four winds are going to do, is hurt earth and sea and the trees. Right? And we see the same imagery come up here as well. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests. And it keeps on going like that, where God is essentially saying what he's going to do, what kind of curses he's going to be bringing against the house of Israel. Verse 12, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are thickening upon their leaves, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. So this notion of searching, we saw that earlier when you had the angel go through the city and then seal the 144,000, go through the the tribes and seal 144,000. The same imagery appears here again. God is searching the hearts of people before the judgment. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. So, again here, we have this idea where God is going to be judging the world and we have those trumpets that are going to appear, that are going to be heard on the day of the Lord. Right? So the the, the, the notion that that silence is, is, is effectively pregnant with the judgment of God is true. It is preparing the blast of the trumpets. But it isn't, an, it isn't as if God is sitting and resting. It is effectively a judgment. And we, the silence is on us. We are silent. It doesn't say anything about God being silent. The reason why we're silent is because we are awestruck by what God is about to do. All right? I have three more references that I'd like to go through. Zechariah chapter 2. In Zechariah 2, he has a vision. And he sees a man that is about to measure Jerusalem. Anytime you have a measuring going on, it is either because Jerusalem is being rebuilt or Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. In this instance, it is about to be destroyed. So all those references to Jerusalem are important to us from a literal standpoint because it allows us to anchor the context of Revelation around uh, before 70 AD, before the destruction of Jerusalem. Many of those hints and allusions would not make sense if Jerusalem was already destroyed. But if it was not destroyed yet, then this text becomes very rich historically. And it applies to those who lived during that time. Much better if 
than if Jerusalem was already destroyed. Be it as it may. So in verse 5 he says, For I will be to her a wall of fire round about, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within her. No, so I'm sorry, this is, this is actually about Jerusalem being rebuilt, not destroyed. Right, this is about Jerusalem being rebuilt. And it is a prophecy against Babylon. And he says, for lo, verse, verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah and his portion, as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now, that adds another twist to the silence. So far we've seen silence as judgment, silence as being awestruck by what God is about to do. But there's another aspect of that silence. right? Be silent as God is doing a new thing. Be silent as God is choosing his bride. And that, I would suggest to you, is another really important meaning that we should not ignore. This is the mystical part of this explanation. It has to do with the silence that takes place before the unveiling of the bride in marriage. In a Jewish marriage, a traditional Jewish marriage would last for seven days. And on the seventh day, the bride and the groom enters a tent. Now, don't think just as in terms of a cloth tent. It could be a more solid tent, but yet still is a tent. And there, for the first time, the bride will unveil her face. She will be apocalypsed. She will be revealed. You understand? And when this happens, the bride and the groom are going to enter into marital unity. They are going to basically get to know each other in the flesh. And you'd hope that while this is happening, everybody else has withdrawn. Effectively has become, have become silent. Hmm? So the deepest joy, the deepest joy of the human heart happens in silence. Those of you who um, are interested by that or are, would like to learn more about that, um, read, read uh, the biography of St. Teresa of Avila or read um, some of her other writings where she speaks about the interior life. Because this is what we're talking about here. So far, the way I presented silence to you would be kind of a military silence. All those people up in heaven, the saints and the angels, are kind of standing and ready because God is about to, you know, push on the red button. It's sort of military readiness, but it's not at all. That's not what we're talking about. It's a lot more than that. There is a profound communion that takes place during that silence. And this is what this text is alluding to. So therefore, it is a very prayerful silence. All right? It isn't empty. It's not like, okay, we're waiting, 
and then be quiet because God is thinking about it. You know, not at all. I hope that you're starting to see the hints of the liturgy here. And I hope that you're starting to see that this text shines when you place it within the liturgy. And when you take it out, you're going to have a hard time. I'll show you that why, why this is actually very true a little bit later. Let's move now to another really interesting text. Matthew chapter 22. Now, Matthew 22 is a very interesting parable. Here it is. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the marriage feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, Behold, I have made ready my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the marriage feast. But they made light of it and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So, you know, covenantally, you start to understand this, the blessings and the curses, right? It's just implied here in this text. The wedding, right. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the thoroughfares and invite to the marriage feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I want you to key in on those words. Both bad and good. He didn't say, go invite the holy ones. Both bad and good. Now, what is this parable about so far? What is the kingdom of heaven? The church. The kingdom of heaven is the church. It cannot be heaven, because in heaven, you're going to have a really hard time finding anything bad. Much less anybody bad. Right? So we know it's not heaven. Well, what is it? It's not the world. You're left with what? The church. Okay? Let me ask you this question. What did St. Paul call members of the church? No, apostles are only those who were the twelve who followed Jesus, and then they appointed others. Disciples is a general word we use for every Christian. Right? Huh? The body, yes? Saints! He called them saints, right? Both bad and good were called saints. Isn't that odd? Why were they called saints? Because we take the body of Christ. That's the fundamental idea. It's right there. Because we are in a church who is holy. Right? So as long as we're in a church, we are under the cover, under the shelter of the, sh- of the church. We're called saints. But there's going to come a day of reckoning where there's separation. Not everybody is, be- is going to become a permanent saint. Right now we are temporary saints. We're saints on probation. Right? We have a, we have an H1B, if you speak my language. 
for heaven. All right? It's a temporary, um, temporary um, work permit visa. That's what we have. Right? None of us is permanent right now. When we get to heaven, that's it. Why am, I, why am I insisting on this? Bear with me. You'll see why in a minute. Just keep that in mind. All right. But when the king came into the inn to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Speechless. That is the other dimension of this silence. You see, here you're going to see the importance of our theology of the liturgy. If you do not have a theology of the liturgy, you are going to assume, as most commentators, and every single one I've read, assumes that those saints that we saw in the sixth seal, they're all in heaven. You understand? They are all in heaven. If you make that assumption about the sixth seal, what are you to conclude about the seventh? It's the final judgment. All the heavens are, all the saints are up in heaven. It's now the final judgment. And then from then on, you're going to torque the text to fit a final judgment scenario. Only a final judgment scenario. And when you do that, you push the text so far out, then how do you relate to it? The only way you can relate to it is if you happen to live at the end times. If you're not living at the end times, if the end times is sort of 4,000 years from now, who cares? We're not it. We're not part of the tribulations. What should we worry about? It's just about the, right? The only way we can worry about it is that if it becomes, if the final, if the, the end is coming right now or tomorrow or in about half an hour from now. Right? See? Do, do, you, do you get what I'm, what, I'm get, what, I'm, what I'm trying to explain to you? If you do not have a proper theology of the liturgy, if you do not understand the church as being heaven on earth, if you don't accept the notion that in the church and in the saints you have the good and the bad, all this text recedes all the way to the future or all the way to the past. It has nothing to do with us. But if you look at it from the standpoint of the liturgy, guess what? It is very applicable. And furthermore, it, it gives the text a meaning that is much more profound, I find, and simpler. It simplifies it. Now, let's see how. How many of you have been to the old Latin Mass. Good. A good number of you. Let me ask you this question. What happens during the, litur- during the Eucharistic prayers? The, I'm sorry. What happens during the Eucharistic prayer? The priest has his back turned to you, right? What are you doing? Huh? Pray with the priest, but... but, but Silent. Get it? You see what's going on here? 
I told you earlier that the letters correspond to the liturgy of the Word. And as soon as John goes up to heaven, we've entered the liturgy of the Eucharist. That's what's going on here. If you've been to that liturgy, you understand this text already. You understand the silence I'm talking to you about. It is a silence where we examine ourselves. It is a silence where we offer petition to God. It is a silence where we adore God. It is effectively a silence where we recognize who God is and who we are. It is a very powerful and dynamic silence. The liturgy is the key to this text. I'll I'll say that over and over again. God acts through the liturgy. This is happening through the liturgy, and we'll see it in a minute why this is so. I'll, I'll take questions at the end, if you don't mind. Again, um, the last text I'll point out to you is Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 20. If you turn to Romans 3, verse 1 through 20, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. This is chapter 3, verse 1 through 20. The Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every man be false, as it is written, that thou mayest be justified in thy words and prevail when thou art judged. But if our wickedness serves to show the justice of God, what shall we say? But if our wickedness serves to show the justice of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness abounds to His glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil, when why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For I have already charged that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear for God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What is this whole text about? A lot of things. I'm just going to focus on a couple of ideas. This is, by the way, one text that many Protestants will use to, to, to attack the sinlessness of Mary, because they say no one has sinned, no one. Again, point out to them charitably that they're taking it out of context. I told you, text out of context is pretext. Paul is not speaking about individuals. He's speaking about nations. He's saying, what about Jews and Greeks? We're all sinning. Jews or Greeks. He's not saying individually there's no, no one who sinned because then, then he would have to exclude all the, all the newborn. 
he would be basically charging newborn with sinning, which of course is, a, is, 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 is absurd. So you can't use that to say Mary was not, um, was, was not, um, is not sinless. Right? You, you, if you do that, you're taking it out of context. But that's not what I'm reading this text to you. My point is this. It's reinforcing this notion that those saints, those who, were, who, who gathered together, this great gathering is not only just about the end times, right? The gathering we've seen in, in the sixth seal. Again, this is where the four senses come to our help. Eschatologically or anagogically, as it applies to the church, yes, at the end times, that's what it's going to be. All the saints will be gathered together. But literally, as we live through the history of time, it is about the church gathered, praying the Lord all together, good and bad, brought under one roof, and it is God from His throne who is acting in response to our prayers. This, is, this conversation with God is shaping history. This conversation with God is making nations and unmaking nations. And that's the power that Catholics have, and that's what needs to be unlocked. Because when they start pray, when we start praying this way and living this way, we will change the world. Now let's move. So let's let's summarize. Silence is associated with divine judgment. It is also associated with the awesome, the, the awe that fills us when we see God about to execute His judgment. It is also associated with the joy of the heart as the heart is united to God. All those are part of the silence. What about the half hour? Well, it's only an approximation, right? About half an hour. There is, this is the only place in all of Scripture where you have half hour. So it makes it really tough for us to figure out what he meant. right? There's no other passage in Scripture where we have half hour. The closest parallel is in Daniel, chapter 4, verse 19. Then Daniel was dismayed for a moment and his thoughts alarmed him. What happened is that Nebuchadnezzar had just spoke the dream to Daniel and Daniel is about to interpret it and he is dismayed by what he just heard because he knows what it means. And that keeps him quiet for half an hour. That's the only biblical reference that, we, that I can find that approximates this text. However, there is another context where this makes a lot of sense. Remember in Luke, when, um, when Zach, Zachary was it? Yeah. Zachar, Zach, how do you say it now? Thank you. Zechariah. Zechariah enters, entered the temple to pray by the altar of incense. In the Jewish liturgy, when the priest enters to make the offering by the altar of incense inside the holy, and every man is outside, in the Jewish liturgy, they're praying silently. And that lasts for about half an hour. So that part of the Jewish liturgy in the temple lasts for about half an hour while he's presenting incense. Now what happens a couple of verses down? The angel is going to present incense. So again, it's the liturgy that illuminates the text for us. And it is a meaning that I gave you earlier. It's the silence 
that is filled with prayer. Right? Here's one thing that is not said in this vision, but we can infer. We can infer. In the case of Zechariah, the priest gets in and offers incense. In this case, while the silence is held, who is offering the incense? Who's offering the prayer? Christ. It's the prayer of Jesus Christ. He is the only intermediary between us and the Father. There's no other. This is not in the text. I'm speculating here, right? Theological speculation is not like uh, uh, bingo. It is the, the, the idea that you can take the truth that you have today and propose an expansion of it, provided that you remain faithful to the text and the teaching of the church. Right? So what I'm doing here is I'm proposing to you a reflection that as this is happening, Jesus is offering the prayers to the Father. Very good. So effectively, there is um, one thing I forgot to tell you is that in the old Christian tradition, they, they, they were convinced that when Christ died, everyone fell silent for about half an hour. So the, the liturgy is commemorating, right, at that point, the death and passion, the passion death of our Lord, right? And so what you see here liturgically, again, as we enter in the liturgy of the Eucharist, is effectively the silence that commemorates the death of our Lord. It is the silence that is filled with judgment, because this is what the cross does. Right? It is a silence where the heart is joined with God. And it kind of cl- closes the spirit of, six, the, of the seals, where we all rest in God. So yeah, it is the rest of God, but it's a liturgical rest. We all rest in God in that silence. The angel with a censer. So I'm going to skip on. Um, I'm not going to talk about the seven angels who stand before God who got the trumpets. We're going to deal with that next time. So let's talk about the angel who has the censer. So the text is that, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. And then, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peal of, peals of thunder, loud noises, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. First thing we need to notice is that this is the same altar under which, in the fifth seal, we have the souls of the martyrs. In the Old Testament, in the temple, if you recall from the series we had on the temple, that was the outer altar, the altar of sacrifice, which was in the outer court of the temple, outside the holy. Incense was offered at the golden altar inside the holy. All right? Two different altars. Here, they're combined. Interesting. And how many altars do we have? We have one. We've also combined the two. The altar of sacrifice and the altar of incense has become one altar for us. The other important thing we need to realize is that those martyrs are lived in a historical context. So according to the literal sense of Scripture, their, their prayer is going to apply to their time. You see, that's the power of the liturgy. It makes the text, like the, the book of Revelation, applicable throughout the history of the church continuously, non-stop. So as people are martyred in China and they go up to heaven, that text applies. 
to their context, to their history, to the scenes, that, to, to, to the situation they lived in, to the people who persecuted them. People in the Middle East are being persecuted. The same thing. You see why this is so powerful when it's applied to the liturgy instead of relegating it to the end of time where it kind of loses its power? So, literally, it's about the martyrs who lived in the historical context. Analogically, it is, of course, the sacrifice of Christ. There's only one sacrifice, that of Jesus Christ. Analogically, it applies to the church across time. And, of course, it applies to the end, to the end times in particular. And then morally, morally, it's me, it's you, it's each one of us. The one who presents this petition of the angels, is an, the petitions of the saints, is an angel. It is the angel who is taking the prayers of the saints, which is coming from underneath the altar, mingling it with the incense and presenting it to God. That tells us something about the communion of saints, human and angels. Remember, when we say, I believe in the communion of saints, we don't just mean humans. We mean human and angels, right? And our prayer is the angelic prayer. They make our prayer, our prayers theirs. Now, think about it. When you pray, when you, when you're entering into the liturgy of the Eucharist, and you're kneeling down, this is when you present your petitions. And in fact, in the Maronite rite, this is when the petitions happen. Right then. In the middle of the liturgy of the Eucharist, we have the petitions. This is when we present our petitions. Who takes your petitions to the altar? You've got an angel. He's presenting your petitions. You understand? Why does he mingle it with incense? You know, I don't have time to go through a full study of incense, but we can point a couple of things about incense. In, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, incense is always associated with sacrifice. So incense was added to the burning sacrifice to make it acceptable to God. Think of it at a very practical level. You take an animal and you burn it. Right? It doesn't necessarily produce a sweet smell. So incense was added to produce a sweet smell. Okay? In a very practical level. Now apply that to us. Why do we still use incense? Because most of the time, our prayers sting. Alright? Most of the time, our prayers sting. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to present a proper prayer because we, most of the time, we don't examine ourselves. We don't have time. So the sweet smell of incense is also there to remind us of a couple of things. Number one, it reminds us of the sweetness of Jesus Christ who died for us. The only acceptable sacrifice to God, the only sweet sacrifice there is, is Jesus Christ. The second, it reminds us of the mercy of God the Father, that those sinners we are, He accepts our prayers. The third, it should remind us and, and get us to ask questions about ourselves. Am I smelling like that, spiritually speaking? That's what we should be asking ourselves. All right? There is also another... So, so this idea of sacrifice, um, 
you know, we, we talked about the Jewish, the Jewish feast, but if you were to look at the, the Feast of the Day of Atonement, you will see that incense is used continuously with all the burning sacrifices. And there's lots of references, Leviticus chapter 16, Exodus 29, Ephesians chapter 5, Psalm 141. I don't have time to go through all of this right now. There is also another aspect of incense which is associated with judgment. Uh, in Leviticus 16, verse 12 through 13, the priest will take his censer full of coals of fire of the altar, which is before the Lord, and he will fill his hands with incense, and he will put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will cover the mercy seat. So, this text in particular is, to, is not about judgment. It is about presenting our petitions before the Lord. But... In Numbers chapter 17, verse 11, Moses instructs Aaron thus, Take your censer, put fire from the altar in it, lay incense on it, and bring it quickly to the community to make atonement for them. For wrath has come forth from the Lord, and the blow is falling. Right? So incense also is associated with atonement when judgment is coming. Here we are, Lord, have mercy on us. And you know, those who come to the Maronite liturgy, you hear us say constantly, we don't say, Lord, hear our prayers for us doing petition. That's not the, resp- the response. It is, Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us constantly. Right? It's calling on God's mercy. And that's the reason why. So, um, there was something else I wanted to point out to you, which is that you will find a reference... I thought I had... I had jotted this down. Looks like I didn't. Um, in Zechariah, I believe it's chapter 5. That won't happen. No, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 10. In Ezekiel chapter 10, the same scene happens where an angel takes fire from the altar and then he scatters the coals in the city of Jerusalem because judgment has come upon Jerusalem. Here, something different happens. The coals are taken and are thrown on the earth. So here's the difference between the old covenant, which applied only to the city of Jerusalem, and the new covenant, the worldwide covenant. Notice, notice, the earth. You're a believer, you're not a believer, you're a Jew, you're a Hindu, you're a Muslim, you're, a, you're whatever you are, it doesn't matter. Objectively speaking, the liturgy, the prayers of the saints in the liturgy, bring judgment on the whole earth. That is why we're called to be missionaries. That is why we're called to evangelize. Because the judgment of Jesus Christ covers the earth. So this wrath, this judgment is covenantal and has for its immediate purpose the conversion of sinners and for its eternal purpose, punishment into hell. That's the main line of the book of Revelation. This is constant throughout the book. One one last point I'd like to point out to you, if I can find my page. You notice here in the text, at the end we have, Peals of thunder, loud noises, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. Four things. Peals of thunders, peals of thunder, loud noises, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. 
What is really interesting is there is an expanding series that started in chapter 4, verse 5, where we heard, where we read, lightnings, sounds, and thunder. Three. Now it's four. And we, we will see the series expand when we go to 11, chapter 11, verse 19. We're going to have five items listed. And then chapter 16, verse 18 through 21, where it becomes six. It gets longer as we progress. Why? Because we're going to be moving from warnings, which is what we had right now, to the first wave of covenantal curses with the trumpets, followed by a second and much worse wave with the cups. And so these cosmic disturbances are indication of covenantal judgment. The interesting thing is that before Our Lady appeared in Fatima, the children saw lightning and her thunder in a perfectly blue sky. And they were afraid. And they didn't know why. That's the why. That's the why. Judgment was about to be unleashed on the world. So this whole se- sequence of the seals from beginning to end is part of the Eucharistic prayer. It happens in heaven. It happens on earth. We join into it. So all the problems we have in the world begin are resolved when, one, we first work on ourselves. We make sure we are in a state of grace. We work on becoming saints. Then we come to the liturgy with eyes wide open. We come here to participate in the glory of God with all the saints and all the angels throughout history and time, throughout time and space. And then when the time comes, we present our petitions in faith to God the Father through our Lord. And we ask for things that are specific to our time, just as those martyrs did. They did not have in mind a prayer that applied to the end times. They had in mind specific people who were the, who were the reason of their dying. So all the problems we have, all the issues we might have with certain politicians and certain governments and what have you, all those are brought here. And as we present those petitions, God from his throne, responds. And then we have to start discerning the signs of the times to see how God is acting through history because he is going to continue doing that even if we become deaf and blind throughout all of history until the consummation of ages. God bless you. We have time for some questions. Yes. The question is, one of the use of incense is that our petitions are being carried up to heaven. That is correct. It is one of the, one of the use of incense because if you notice in, the, in verse, I didn't allude to this because I was running out of time, but in verse 4, and the smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. If you think about the liturgy, not just in heaven, but on earth all combined, the smoke of the incense is rising from us all the way to the throne of God, and it's carrying our prayers. Um, it, it has the same representation. I don't know if it has the same effect. The question is, does it work also when we pray at home when we burn incense? Um, if you join your prayers to the liturgy, then I would suspect that the answer would be yes. That's my take on it.
what if they don't use incense at the Mass? Um, in that case, you are deprived from a physical element that is supposed to really help you focus. Still, your prayer is rising to God. It isn't the physical incense per se that are, of course, taking your prayers to heaven. This is just something for our bodies and our eyes to see, feel, and touch and remind us of what is going on. It's an aid. It's an important one because we are... <coughs> because we pray with our bodies. That's why the use of incense is much encouraged. Yes. Uh, the question is, we don't offer our prayers the right way. What is the right way to offer it? What I meant by that is that the, the, <coughs> to show God that we're really sincere, we have to ask Him to help us know ourselves and know what he, what he wants us to pray for. Most of the time, we have certain prayers and needs, and we just present those without wondering if those are the prayers that He wants us to offer. There's nothing wrong in doing that, but we have, in order, in order to mature in our faith, to really desire that our will be the will of Christ. So we have to ask Him for that. That means He's going to show us who we are, where our weaknesses are, what are the things that are really important that He wants us to pray for. And then our prayer becomes very meaningful. That's what I meant. We are creatures of habit, and I would say that many Catholics are creatures of car wash habit. You know, you go to the car wash, you just press on the buttons, and you just go through the nine layers of cleaning, and we come to the church, we press on a button, and we just go through the whole thing. I'm sure you heard this joke where a bishop was celebrating the liturgy, and he came to, the, to say the homily, and he started talking, but the mic wasn't on. So he, he, he hit it with his finger, and he wanted, you know, it wasn't working. But at the same time, someone caught up on this and got up and turned it on. So the bishop says, there is something wrong with this mic. And the congregation answered, and also with you. We, that's what I'm talking about, right? We just go through the whole process, and we, we're not actively trying to say to the Lord, okay, I really want to understand the liturgy. I really want to deepen my love for you. That, those are the things that I'm talking about. The question, very good question, should we ask God to show us before we go to the church? Yes, that means, and this is what I'm going to get to as we go through the whole book, hopefully you're going to see that more and more, that I said that initially, I'm going to repeat it again, your whole week is a preparation for the Mass. And your whole week is a thanksgiving, thanksgiving for the Mass. You see? So, St. Charbel did that. He would spend three hours in preparation for the Mass every morning, and then he spent much of his afternoon thanking God for the Mass. So you become really Mass. I mean, you become centered around the liturgy. Right? You understand that all our personal prayers, all our personal prayers in order to be efficacious, need to be joined to the liturgy. There's no, there is no prayer outside of the liturgy. The rosaries we say, the personal prayers we have, all of that is joined to the liturgy and presented to God. So while we do not have a responsibility to go to Mass every day, we have the responsibility to unite our prayers to the liturgy celebrated every day. We should offer the prayers that we say during the week at the Mass I'm not saying that you offer the prayers. What I'm saying is that during the week, you are focused on the liturgy. So that when you come here, your bowl or your, your, yeah, your gifts of prayer are full. So when you kneel to pray before the, the, the Eucharistic prayer, you can imagine your guardian angel going there, joining, standing by the altar, and holding in his hands your prayers that are presented. You don't want him to go there empty-handed. Everything, yes, yes. That's the that's when you start to become really liturgically centered. 
Yes. The question is, was oh, well, the Maronite rite was also facing the altar? Yeah, all the rites. Because it isn't just the altar, it is also the tabernacle. You see, from the book of Revelation, you notice from the beginning that you have the 24 elders who are priests facing God. They're not facing the people who showed up with the palms. They're facing straight God, the throne of God and the Lamb. So what you have here, you have the, the tabernacle, that is the throne of God, right? In a fundamental way, because God is substantially present. The cross and the altar are really basically the same thing. It is the, the, the altar of sacrifice, right? So it used to be that the priest would stand here and face God when he said his prayer. And that meant for us that, number one, there's a difference between us and the priest, because he can do something that we cannot do. And number two, visually, it helped us to remind, oh, God is here. Because the priest is talking to him. Right? And so it really helped us focus and be more conscientious of this. And hopefully, through a process of constant education and renewal of the hearts. You see, before the liturgy can change, hearts must change. To understand what we're doing. While we're doing it, then we will all be saying, well, wait a minute, we want it to be done the right way. We want it to be done like it's shown here. That's the, that's the pattern. This is how they pray in heaven. We want to pray here like they do upstairs. Up, upstairs. Up there, I mean. <laughs> Not upstairs. All right? God willing. Yes. Right. But it's, yes, we remember that when the, the, the Eucharistic prayer is about the representation of the sacrifice of Christ for us. It's essentially that one sacrifice made present for us so we can benefit from, from it. Right? So what do we offer? We cannot offer that. You cannot offer Christ. He offered himself. So what do you offer? What do you put on the altar? It's a word of three letters long. Y-O-U. That's it. We're joining ourselves with the sacrifice of Christ. Right? That's why we, we also, that's why it's so important that uh, we have those uh, baskets going around and we're collecting money. People don't understand this. They think, well, all oh, the priest is just trying to take money of us. They don't understand it. It just bugs me. Don't get me going on this. The point is that you can't take your arm and slice a cut of it and put it on the altar. That would be, well, th- forget that image. Sorry. <laughs> Wrong image. You can't take a part of yourself, and, right? You can't. So what do you do? Since you cannot give yourself, so to speak, you give what you have. And that's what's so, it's so important that, that that basket of money makes its way under the altar. And that be taken away because this is what, it represents us. We're under the altar. You get that from the fifth seal? Under the altar? That's why the basket is there. It's under the altar. Yes, but, but also ourselves at the end of the day. That's it. We offer ourselves to to be joined to the suffering of Christ on the cross so that we can become conformed to his image. That's it. it well, okay, the, the question about putting money. I'll, I'll point out this to you. Uh, the, uh, hold on, hold on. The, the, no, 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 it's important. Look, one priest put it this way. He said he was, a, he was a monk. And he said he had to go to this parish because he had to help a priest. And so at, the, at that monastery, they don't have a... Uh, a collection. Thank you. I can find the word. And he said he was really appalled when he saw people putting a dollar bill. And his comment was really striking. He said, if they went to the restaurant, 
They won't give a daughter tip. They'd be ashamed. But they come to the church, they have absolutely no problem giving a, a buck. So, I don't know everybody's uh, financial situations, or I, so I'm not trying to pass a judgment here, but here's the deal. Give until it hurts. Okay? That's how it goes. Because uh, you're not giving, if you are, if you are, how could you think that God is going to accept your prayer when you are um, stingy? You see, that, that indicates you're coming here because you want Him to give you something, not because you want to give Him something. You're getting it wrong. And the reason why that happens is that most of the time, a lot of people do come here, they're contracepting, many of them are contracepting, and they have absolutely nothing to give. And yeah, they, they are yearning for peace, and they cannot have it. When you contracept a child, you contracept God, and you won't give God His due. It's that simple. Right. Um, let's uh, end with a word of prayer. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.